everyone, welcome back to Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I am your host, Chris Prosser. In this week's episode, we are going to be starting what is perhaps the most famous of all of Jesus' teachings, of course being the Sermon on the Mount, which takes up an entire two chapters in Matthew's Gospel. Now, the sermon itself is broken up into a few different parts, the Beatitudes, which we're going to talk about today, the six antithetical statements, and then Jesus moves on to cover a series of other topics, including giving to the poor, how we should pray, laying up treasures in heaven, um, anxiety, the golden rule, and he gives a solemn warning to those who believe simply because they give lip service um, that that means that they have received eternal life. In his commentary on Matthew, uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, he says that the Gospel of Matthew as a whole is really about the authority of Jesus, and this is explicitly seen in the Sermon on the Mount, both at the start and at the conclusion. O'Donnell points out that in the Beatitudes, Jesus is making promises of future blessings of things like receiving the kingdom of heaven and seeing God, being called sons of God. These types of promises could only be made if Jesus had a certain level of authority, and in fact, Jesus didn't just have the minimal amount of authority that uh, would be needed to make these sorts of promises. He has all authority that is needed. Uh, he has the ultimate authority. And this observation of Jesus' authority is not just the speculation of a modern-day, seemingly biased Christian either. The scriptures tell us that the crowds who heard this sermon recognized that Jesus spoke with a level of authority that was never seen in the leading Bible teachers of the day. There's obviously going to be a lot to unpack over the next several episodes as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, but I think it's going to be more than worth our time to explore the teachings of our Lord in these uh, next couple of chapters. And like I said, today we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and so I want to just start off with a couple of introductory comments. First, I think it's really important that we set the scene leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So the verses immediately preceding the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount tell us that at this point, Jesus's ministry um, is rapidly gaining um, name recognition and fame in, in effect. And so the text even tells us why specifically Jesus's fame is growing. In Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25, it says, And he went all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So in those couple of verses, we're told that Jesus was already actively preaching the gospel, which, if you'll remember from a couple of episodes ago, I explained the summary of the gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the whole reason that John the Baptist was sent ahead of Christ. If you'll think back, like I said, just a couple of episodes. The second thing that we're told is that Jesus's healing ministry was also well underway at this point. And it seems to me that it's that aspect of his ministry, which seems to have elicited such growth in his fame so rapidly. Now, the reason I say this is because there's only a brief mention of his teaching ministry in verse 23a. So that's the first half of verse 23. And then the rest of verse 23, so 23b, and all of verse 24 refer to Jesus's healing ministry. Now, I'm not saying that one of these components of ministry was more important or more preeminent over the other, 
I'm just observing here that it seems that people were primarily coming to Jesus at this point for the sake of either witnessing or receiving a healing for themselves or for a loved one, maybe. So we know that in other parts of the Gospels, uh, people exclusively came to Jesus to experience a miracle for their own selfish reasons. And a great example of this is found in John's Gospel when Jesus performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 2 says that a large crowd was following him, that is Jesus, because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. But then later on, Jesus calls out those very same people on their hypocrisy because they were seeking not because they saw a sign, but because they ate their fill of the bread. And now the reason I bring this up is because what a better time to deliver such an important sermon that really sets the standard, so to speak. Um, what better time is there than when there's potentially some in the crowd or maybe a lot of people in the crowd who are listening to this sermon who are following Jesus all for the wrong reasons. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus delivers to us his exposition of the Law and the Prophets. And while, yes, this does include what I will call kingdom ethics, how we should live as Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is way more than just a pure moral teaching. So second comment here is, it's kind of peculiar that Jesus begins his sermon with blessings. And the reason I say that is because blessings were typically given at the end of a discourse, not the beginning. And Matthew Henry has pointed out that this is completely in alignment with Jesus's mission. He came to give blessings and to give life. And so it's only fitting that he starts one of his most important sermons by giving out blessings. Beatitude, the word beatitude itself means supreme blessedness. And what Jesus does at the start of this sermon is that he describes who the blessed are in the current age and their defining characteristics, and then he delivers a promise of a future blessing that is to be received by those same people. The other thing about the Beatitudes is how countercultural they are, and we'll notice this a lot as we go through, and even more so when we get to the six antithesis uh, statements when Jesus outright says, you have heard it said X, but I say to you Y, and Jesus corrects a really bad, perverted, carnal view of, uh, of a teaching. Um... But in the Beatitudes, it is the meek, and it's those who mourn and those who are persecuted who Jesus deems blessed, not the strong, the mighty, the powerful, or the rich. So very countercultural and would have been very controversial for Jesus to be saying what he said. A third and final comment here is about the structure of the Beatitudes. In the ESV Expository Commentary, which by the way, you can get full access to on ESV.org for something like a couple of dollars a month and that's not a paid-for plug by them or anything like that. It's a tool that I use myself. I think it's 2 or $3 a month. It's totally worth it. Uh, lots of great information in there. But anyways, on their section covering the Sermon on the Mount, they have a flow chart, which is really helpful because it demonstrates the sort of structure that lies behind the Beatitudes. So the first three Beatitudes deal with what they call the Beatitudes of Need. In other words, these are the ones... Um, these are the characteristics um, that sort of serve as a foundation, and they all sort of build off of one another, right? So these are things that we need. It shows our dependency as humans. The fourth beatitude is really the center point, which of course is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The idea being that righteousness is the central theme behind all the beatitudes. And then the final three uh, beatitudes fit into a category of action, meaning that following the first four, these beatitudes result in the individual actually doing something like showing mercy or keeping the peace. 
So now I want to go ahead and move into each of these Beatitudes individually and look at what each of them mean. So starting off, we have, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt. And in fact, it even goes a step further than that because we are all spiritually bankrupt. To be poor in spirit is a recognition of said spiritual bankruptcy. So to be poor in spirit means that someone recognizes that apart from God, they can do absolutely nothing, let alone please him. They depend on God in every circumstance to meet every need. Poorness of spirit is presented first on purpose because as we will see, it is the attribute on which all the other beatitudes are built upon. To say this beatitude, maybe with a little bit different wording, we could say something like, blessed are those who are solely dependent on the Lord. This sort of recognition is a work of the Holy Spirit in which he opens the eyes of the blind and he puts a mirror right in front of them and then allows them to see themselves as they truly are. Jesus, in effect, is saying that it is those who, one, make an accurate assessment of themselves and their unworthiness before God, and two, respond with dependence upon God who will receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, I already mentioned this, but this is this sort of statement would be seen as a total upside down and backwards uh, sort of statement to make to some of Jesus's audience. The carnal mind would naturally think that it is the proud and the well-accomplished that will receive heaven, but Jesus says it's just the opposite. It is the poor in spirit, those who know they don't have anything to offer God who will actually, um, it is those people who will actually receive the kingdom of heaven. Second, we have blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, I think at times, and probably very unintentionally, uh, unintentionally, this verse gets slightly misused or taken out of context. I know for myself, I've quoted this text in various situations, uh, trying to provide comfort to someone else or even to myself when I'm going through a tough time. And in the past, I've taken this verse to just mean that blessed are the ones who have a tough time in life because in heaven, they're going to have eternal comfort. And while in other places, the Bible certainly promises that once we arrive at eternity, Sin, death, and decay will be no more, and God himself is going to wipe away every tear and provide us with his everlasting comfort. I just don't know that that's what this verse is speaking directly to. I say all of this because I think the type of mourning spoken of here is not the type we necessarily think that it is. I think the first thing that comes to mind when we hear the word mourning, or those who mourn, is that that type of mourning that's associated with personal loss or suffering. And so I think it's helpful if we just take a second to look at a couple of the different types of mourning found in Scripture and see which type makes the most amount of sense given the rest of the context. So there are three types that we can talk about. We can talk about sinful mourning, penitent mourning, and sympathetic mourning. Sinful mourning is a type of mourning we experience for unbiblical reasons. Something like grieving the loss of worldly possessions or mourning in an ungodly way over hard circumstances in our life. This type of mourning is definitely not what Christ had in mind. Penitent mourning is the type of mourning that we experience over our own sin, and John MacArthur does an excellent job at contrasting these two types with a quote, which I'll go ahead and read. He says, The sorrow of true repentance is sorrow for offense against a holy God. So that sorrow for offense against a holy God, that is the penitent type of mourning or grief that we've been talking about. He continues on saying, not simply regret over the personal consequences of our sin. Sorrow over being found out or over suffering hardship or discipline because of our sin is not a godly sorrow and has nothing to do with repentance. That sort of sorrow is but selfish regret, concern for self rather than for God. So moving on, we have the third type, which is sympathetic mourning. 
And this is the type of mourning that we experience when we grieve for the loss and hardship of others. So grieving with those who grieve. And I hope this goes without saying, but the second and the third types of mourning are certainly biblical and God-honoring as to where the first one is not. And out of these options, I actually believe it's the second penitent mourning that Jesus had in mind here. My case for this is because it makes the most sense when we think of the first beatitude. Jesus had just said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they have nothing to offer God and look to him alone for their help. A natural progression from this realization would then be mourning over the existing sin in your life because you've already come to the realization of your fallen condition. The promise here then is that those who mourn will in fact be comforted. But what does Jesus mean by they will be comforted? It means that those who are stricken with grief over their sin and have a sincere desire to kill the sin in their life will find their greatest comfort in the new heaven and in the new earth, at which point sin and death will no longer be present. What Christ is saying here is that mourn now for your sin and you will be eternally comforted when it rains in you no more. So moving on, next we have blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew Henry, again, you guys know I like to reference Matthew Henry. Um, he's pointed out in his famous commentary that this is one of the few expressed temporal blessings in the New Testament. Now what he means by that is that the blessing that Jesus is describing here is for the present age. That's what Henry means when he says temporal. He's talking about the here and now. The Greek word used here is actually a variation of the Greek word praus, which basically means gentle, lowly, and humble. And the same word or variations of it is used in, uh, in other texts by Jesus, like in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. Right. So we have the words right there in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then also Matthew 21, 5, which is a quotation from Zechariah 9, 9, and says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So I bring up these other texts because I think it's really significant that the word meek or humble that the scriptures and Jesus used to describe himself is the same word that is used to describe those who are blessed in this current life. And I'll revisit this later on, so I don't want to say too much about it right now. But meekness leads to a life of peacemaking, which is one of the Beatitudes of Action, if the listener will remember that category from earlier. So being meek really leads to an undisturbed enjoyment of God, others, and yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that your life will be without trouble or conflict. Jesus' life is like Exhibit A of putting that notion to rest. But it does mean that even in the troubles of life, you seek to give no offense and you seek to take none because you know your place in the world. And that place is squarely under the authority of God, and it is in that place that you are going to find the most joy. And this seems to me to be an echo of Psalm thirty-seven, eleven, which says, But the meek shall inherit in the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And by the way, it should not shock us when the same God who authored Scripture cites that very same Scripture to remind us of His immutable promises. So now we arrive at the central idea, righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now there are two views on what this text means, and I think they both have some biblical warrant. So I want to share them both before I share which view I hold to be more so in alignment, considering the rest of the context. So the first view is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who patiently endure oppression and wrongdoings from others because they know that God ultimately will leave no wicked unpunished and he is the final judge who will execute his perfect justice. In other words, 
These are the people who truly believe that vengeance is the Lord's. The second view is that this verse is related to a type of spiritual hunger and thirst. Being hungry and being thirsty are very real life experiences that every person at some point or another has has had, and because of that, the notion of being hungry or thirsty is extremely relatable. You feel hungry when your stomach is empty, and you feel thirsty when you're dehydrated. In other words, these are sensations that we all experience when we are lacking something that our bodies need in order to live. Now, the Puritans, they would say that hunger and thirst in this context refer to two separate types of righteousness, justifying and sanctifying. Thirst represents justifying righteousness or the righteousness that makes us right in our standing before God, and hunger represents the sanctifying righteousness um, that begins the moment someone is converted and is only perfected in heaven. Now, if you don't know what sanctification means, the process of sanctification is simply the process of obeying God more and rebelling against God less. Now, I personally think that the second view here is more appropriate given the theme that's been established this far. Now, that does not mean I think the first view is unbiblical. I think it is certainly a biblical idea that we are to wait and let God be the one who exacts justice on those who treat us poorly or treat us wrongly in this world. But again, given the full context of what Jesus has been talking about up to this point, I find the second view to be the most fitting. And of course, the promised future blessing for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness in this life, they're ultimately going to have their fill in heaven when we see Christ face to face and we are made to be like him in our glorified state. All right, so moving on to the next one. Uh, these are the first of the, um, or this is the first of the Beatitudes of Action that we talked about earlier. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the first Beatitude of Action, and if the listener will remember from the start of the episode, I said that the final three all involve some sort of action being taken by the one who has been called blessed. The definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And there's a really great parable that Jesus gives several chapters later in Matthew's gospel called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this parable does an excellent job at showing both showing both what showing mercy and withholding mercy actually looks like. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read that now. So this is in Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So in this parable, of course, we want to take our lead from the king who had every right to punish the servant, to collect his debt from the servant. Um, but instead, he decides to show compassion and pity because the servant pleaded with him. 
And the unforgiving servant, on the other hand, he shows us the exact opposite of what we are to do. But unfortunately, we all too often look like the unforgiving servant and less like the king. We abuse the mercy that we've received rather than looking like the king and extending mercy to others. All of the Beatitudes, or excuse me, of all the Beatitudes, I presently find this one the most convicting. It's so easy to, to look around and hold others accountable for their wrongdoings, especially when we're the ones who affected. And we might have due course and we might be in the right to take action against them. But it is just as easy to completely forget the mercy that we have received from God. And then as a result of our forgetfulness, we withhold mercy from others. So let us not forget that we are all sinners and we deserve God's wrath. But it is because of his mercy that we are not consumed. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, he's saying, blessed are the ones who have received mercy from my Father and are now extending that mercy to others. It is by showing mercy that we reflect God in a world that is largely and predominantly unmerciful and unforgiving. And it is those who show mercy in this world who receive the ultimate mercy in heaven when they stand before God in judgment. The next beatitude we have is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, in a way, we can summarize it by saying that those who are pure in heart do not live duplicitous lives. In other words, they don't play church on Sunday and live like the rest of the world Monday through Saturday. The pure in heart are those who fight off temptation and they abstain from worldly lust. The pure in heart are those whose great desire is to see God in his glory. And in fact, it is only the pure in heart who will see God, as we're told by Jesus. And this is so important for us to understand especially when we're faced with an unbelieving, skeptical world whose favorite accusation against Christianity is that if God were really as good and loving as Christians say that he is, he would just save everyone and not let a single person be punished in hell. The problem with this view, as is implied with this verse, is that those who love their sin and see no problem with it, they have no desire to forsake their sin, those would be the impure in heart. They would see it as an absolute torture to be in the presence of a pure and holy God. Being in God's presence would be held to them if they love and cherish their sin. It is only those who want to kill the sin in them and they want to be free from sin who will be delighted to see God um, you know, one day in eternity. And I want to be clear on this point before I move on. None of us are pure in heart by nature and none of us seek after God under our own power. Paul says, there's none who don't who don't do good, if I can talk. <laughs> there there are none who do good, not even one. And it's only by being regenerated by the Spirit of God that we begin to be sensitive to the things of God and we get a growing desire to seek after Him. Being pure in heart does not mean that we're perfect. If that was the case, not a single one of us would ever see God. But being pure in heart means that even though we wait in the already but not yet, we've already been redeemed. Uh, but we're wait, uh, awaiting that perfected state when Christ will return for us and we will receive our glorified bodies to be free from sin forever. Being pure in heart means that we seek God with all that we can and fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil with every ounce of grace that he's given to us. So now we're at the last two Beatitudes. So first we have, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now I mentioned this earlier, but the foundation of meekness is inextricably tied to the action of being a peacemaker. I said that those who are meek seek to give no offense and seek to take none, and it is in that way that those who are meek are actively able to be peacemakers. And peace is such an important theme in both Testaments. We can look at texts like Psalm 34:14 that says, Turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it, or Romans 12:18 that says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Even more importantly, 
God is the God of peace. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Matthew Henry points out that God is the God of peace, Jesus is the Prince of peace, and the Spirit is the Spirit of peace. Therefore, the children of God must be children of peace. Now we are at the final beatitude concerning those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this might be the most difficult of all the Beatitudes that we have covered so far, especially if you're living here in the West. If you get onto social media or YouTube or watch some of the most prominent televangelists, um, you will hear a gospel that promises ease and prosperity. A gospel that promises if you want something badly enough and pray and tithe a little bit of money, God will be in your back pocket. And like a genie in a bottle, he will heal all your diseases. He will give you all the money and worldly pleasures that your little sinful heart can desire. In a word, the gospel being proclaimed today largely in the West can be summed up in a single word, which is comfort. In this final beatitude, Jesus absolutely demolishes this idea. And it's not just this text alone. On several occasions, Jesus does anything but promise his weak and cowardly disciples that because they openly follow him, that their lives will now be super easy. John 15, 18 through 20 says, If the world hates you, this is Jesus talking. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own, because you were, but because you were not of the world, um, but I chose you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then just a few verses later, in that same chapter, Jesus reiterates the guarantee of persecution. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Now, I don't want to get too caught up in dismantling the prosperity gospel because that is not the purpose of this episode. But I bring it up to show that in the opening of this sermon, Jesus is absolutely destroying the desires and lusts of the carnal mind by flipping our natural inclinations on their head. And one of the effects that that will have, of course, and we're definitely going to see this as we get to some some of the harder teachings as we progress forward, um, one of the effects that this has is it eliminates those who are following Jesus purely for material reasons um, or thinking that they're going to get a great life on earth just because they're following Jesus. And, you know, we have to think Jesus himself suffered terrible persecution to a degree that no human mind can comprehend or understand. When we suffer persecution or oppression, it's no more than what we deserve. I mean, we're all sinners after all. But Jesus, he was perfect. He was completely clean and not stained by sin. Christ was persecuted because a self-righteous people could not stand to be in the presence of the, the holy and righteous and pure God that they claim to serve. Darkened minds hate the light, and Christ came to be the light of the world. We see this beatitude play out in the book of Acts when the apostles are arrested and they ultimately get beaten and then released. But listen to their response after their wrongful beating. Acts 5.41 says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is, of course, the name of Jesus. It's definitely worth pointing out that, as well as we continue to think about this idea of persecution, persecution, it's worth pointing out that Jesus gives the reason that his followers will be persecuted. Notice he does not say that his followers will be reviled for anything originating within the followers themselves, but instead he says, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account, meaning blessed are those who suffer for my gospel and for my name's sake. Jesus is not saying here that we should go out of our way to be persecuted for our faith. I think that would be a sort of self-seeking persecution that is not at all God-honoring. But he is, in effect, saying that if we live consistently with his teaching and proclaim his gospel, persecution in some form or another is inevitable. And, you know, if you want to learn more about persecution, I would highly recommend reading something like Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, There's a lot of encouraging yet very gruesome stories of just believer after believer, especially in the early church, who lived out what Jesus is talking about here. These men, women, and even children were brutally executed, not because they were doing something wrong. It was simply because they refused to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode. This is definitely a little bit longer of an episode uh, compared to normal, so I apologize. But hopefully you as the listener will have found this as time well spent. And at the end of the day, that is my greatest hope. Next time we're going to be staying in the Sermon on the Mount, but we will be jumping ahead briefly to what is known as the six antithetical statements, where Jesus is going to correct the corrupted and perverted teaching traditions of his day. And he's even going to give us as readers 2,000 years later, crucial insight into the nature of God's holy standard. This has been Theology in a Cup of Coffee. I'm Chris Prosser, and I'll see you next time.